Welcome to an edition of Rollo Dungeon Master's Guide to Mastering Dungeons. I'm your host, Logan Johnson. And I'm your Dungeon Master, Nathaniel Johnson. Welcome to episode 2.6, season 2, episode 6. It's going to be a punchy one. Perhaps a little spicy. The most astute listeners will notice a slight difference. Why do you like to call our listeners astute? I mean, do you know what astute means? No. Oh, okay. It just means like they're incredibly observant and on the ball. Oh. Which ball is this that they're on? Is it like a bowling ball? Is it like a tennis ball? Like, depending on the size of the ball, might it's actually it Bob down. Ball. Bob Ball. Famous voice recorder, Bob Ball. That that would do it. That would do it. What about Lucille? Is she on yep, that too? She's on there too. It's okay. all the same ball. It's like a stone cut without hands that has rolled and become a conglomerate of famous actors and voice actors. Which I guess includes us. Yeah, it's pretty graphic. It's just kind of a mangled ball of human flesh. It's kind of horrifying, actually, when you look at it. Yeah, it's challenging at 13, though. You could take it out. Yeah. Don't don't be too scared. But no, in all seriousness, our most astute listeners will notice something, hopefully, very different about the audio quality of this episode. Yeah, this is about to be our spiciest episode yet for a lot of reasons. One is that we are in a room that is about to get really hot. Yeah, it is. But it is a soundproofed room. So hopefully the audio quality is significantly better. Yeah, I can't imagine a world in which it isn't. Our last several episodes, pretty much all of season two, was recorded right next to my desktop computer. Yeah. With the sound of fans whirring. And you know, you can remove a lot of that in Audacity, but... We don't. No. Wait, you don't? (laughs) No. Dude, what? (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Okay, well, this should be a significant improvement. You had the one job was the editing was kind of your thing. Editing is so hard. I don't know how to do it. I don't know what keys to push. Wow. Well, sounds like you don't even know how editing works. (laughs) But that's all right. Uh, The point is this should uh, fix a lot in the way of editing. Yeah. Less uh, ambient noise to remove and, and hopefully a little bit clearer audio with some of the the reverberation being pulled away. We're able to use a bi-directional mic setup, too. There's a lot of stuff cooking up into this. It's that, really nice. We're very happy about it. But the it. point is, uh, hopefully it sounds better. Hopefully it sounds better. Things. Please let us know on Twitter or Instagram. Or, or if it sounds worse, then just don't say then anything. Then just don't say anything and let us live our delusion. We'll know. We'll know. We'll know deep in our subconscious. Yeah. It'll come out a couple what? years from now in psychotherapy. No, what'll happen is we'll go, huh, nobody said anything on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Huh. And then we'll just push that out of mind, and it'll come out later on the couch in the psychologist's office. Will they really even have couches then? I don't know. It depends or, on. Will they be more like holographic couches? Do you know what holograms? Also, okay. Let's. First of all, do you know what holograms are? No, no, no. Hear Second, me out. do you, you know don't what go couches to... <laughs> are? Third, do you know what psychology is? You know, I'm not really sure. It, I, it's something I read a lot in sci-fi books, so I'm pretty sure it's not real. Psychotherapy. Yeah, Sigmund Freud wasn't even real. Nobody. Knows uh, psychohistory is actually what I read a lot about in sci-fi books. Thank you, Isaac Asimov. Yeah. What are we talking about today? Besides holographic couches, which the pitch for that, by the way, <laughs> yeah, okay, the pitch for that is that you don't actually go to the therapist's office. You lay on your own couch at home, and it is holographically projected into the therapist's office. Well, that seems a little redundant because you know the therapist doesn't need to see you. <laughs> You just need to see the therapist. You're not there for his benefit. Right, 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 right. Like, you, you, so it would make more sense for, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. His being, you know, a, a general term referring to all of mankind. 
But wow, mankind. Okay. It's been mankind in the English language since the foundation of it. <laughs> I'm just giving you crap, bro. I like I don't know what you want from me. Ah, oh, what have you I want this episode? podcast. Okay, look, let's I want talk this about podcast. world building. Okay. Right. I built a holographic couch. Yeah. What have you brought to the metaphorical therapist's office? Correct English. <laughs> Just like a good literary background to kind of set our podcast on. Also, I brought us this room. No. I brought us this room. That's categorically untrue. The taxpayers of the state of Utah brought us this room. That is true. We are recording in a university's soundproof room intended specifically for music students, but after much digging and sleuthing and talking to people, we found out that as students of this university, we are able to use it. Also, music students never use these rooms. Nope. Nah. (laughs) Just like... They got a brand new fancy building, and this is the old practice rooms, yeah. so... We're we're just second-hand rooms, we're just second-hand rooms. Yeah? Second-hand rooms, Fleetwood Mac. All right, all right. So let's talk about world building, rooms. because otherwise we're going to lose all of our listeners. All of them. All three or four or five of them, however many we have. Yep. Um, so let's talk about... Uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about politics and world building. Yeah, so get your uh, MAGA hats on or go protest against them because we're doing politics. I would like to clarify, you know liberals do more than just protest against conservatives, right? (laughs) (laughs) But conservatives do not do more than wear MAGA hats. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Well, you know, (laughs) I didn't say it, but... I'm just saying, there's more to politics than just one side taking a stand and the other people yelling about it. Yes, yes there is, which is actually what we're here to talk about. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about why you would include politics in a Dungeons & Dragons game. Because politics is, as we just jokingly danced around, is kind of a sensitive issue for a lot of people. Yeah. Like, people will go spend their Saturdays over political issues that they might not see fruition of. So why include that in D&D? Totally, yeah. I, When you think about important things and touchy subjects, at the core of a lot of Dungeons & Dragons is religion. Yeah. So, like, you know, we, we don't have a politician class, though. Hey, I know you're listening, Wizards of the Coast. I know we're on your radar now. They just announced a new book, the Eberron Campaign Book, that does have a 13th class. Mm. The Artificer class. So maybe politician right, isn't too well, far out. My days as a bard are over, it sounds. Yeah, I think the Artificer is going to be able to create... That is stuff. a politician. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, that's as close as we're going to get. I think so, too. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that's that's really cool, actually. So that'll be in the, the new book. The... In November, Does it yeah. come with races, too? Everyone? Yeah, 16 new races and sub-races. <laughs> okay, well, that seems excessive. Well, some of them are sub-races, but yeah, like, it's, still... it's going to come with like the Warforged and things yeah, like that. Yeah, it still seems wild. Hey, whatever, though. I'm into it. Um, but yeah, because politics and religion are so woven into our identity as people, they make really natural tapestries when you look at them from the viewpoint of storytelling and especially role-playing games. Absolutely. And it's easy, like super easy black and white to see where religion fits into Dungeons and Dragons, right? Sure. But pretend it's not easy for me. What do you Okay, mean? well, there's clerics. Oh, they okay, all, there They it is. all done have gods. <laughs> and most paladins do, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's all there. There's always a, a dark rite or ritual, too, if you want to go, like, the, the cult religion, mm-hmm. thing, right? Um, so there's always something, and it's been woven into the storytelling of Dungeons & Dragons since the beginning. Like, cleric yeah. was one of the first four classes, was it not? I believe so, yeah. And... When you were like a magic user back in the day, you typically worshipped some sort of god of magic. Mm-hmm. Like it was just part of the game. Yeah, and so while it's that's always been kind of woven in, politics is not 
necessarily as big of a part. Though, I mean, there's always your borderline, like, or your baseline kings and queens and, and nobles and things like that. You know, very few Dungeons and Dragons campaigns, I would say, you know, trans- transcend to the level of, like, a Game of Thrones. Right, like right. A, Though, I think that that's hard for anything to do as far as the political... Well, yeah, but you know what I'm saying. Like, sure. you can take an attempt at it, and you I just don't think that many campaigns do. I agree. Right? There's not a whole lot in the way of Dungeons and Dragons that, that has to do with politics, um, at least not in the base, the base game. Right. Absolutely. So, why use it? What would it what would it do to make your game better? Well, it adds a certain level of depth to it, right? Um, the reason people like Game of Thrones is because it is politics. Yeah, I mean, it's very well written politics in a lot of places, from what I gather. Yeah, it's, it's okay. Opinions. It's, it's I'm not good. It's pretty good. I don't watch or read uh, Game of Thrones. Interesting. So. Okay, so it's interesting. Okay, and there it is. It's interesting, it's interesting in the way that that a chess game is interesting, right? Everybody loves playing chess. It's not actually that thrilling to watch unless you understand exactly what is going on, right? Right. When you understand, when you see the player on the right move their queen into a dangerous position, you immediately know he's about to lose his queen. Or he could if the other player notices. That's part of it. Like, you you realize all of these factors, right? Yeah, and when you understand what's going on in a game of chess, it immediately becomes interesting. Game of Thrones and, by extension, politics are exactly the same way. Especially when we talk about... um, you know, like intrigue, yeah. right? Which I think is where Dungeons and Dragons has its biggest possibility. I agree. As far as politics goes, because um, you can create political systems, you can have mayors and and rulers and leaders and dukes and duchesses and earls and, and guys so named on, earl, so right? The earl, earl kings of earl, and queens and kings of queens, kings um, of queens. Very nice, very nice. Yeah. I think we sh- should we make a show about that about the king of queens. No, just oh. we could call it king of queens. <laughs> There was already a show called King of Queens. No, there wasn't. That's ridiculous. You're right. And then our next one will be Everyone Loves Raymond. It's going to be Followed great. by Ice Age. <laughs> Everybody did love Raymond in that movie. Man. But yeah, you see what I'm saying. So intrigue, I think, is the most interesting part that you're going to have. It's the most, shall we say, intriguing. Right. So when I think of politics, I think of kind of two halves of it. There's the intrigue that you talked about, the relationships almost as it were, and what's at stake. And then there's the belief systems that people have. So in our modern political landscape, for instance, there is a lot of talk about immigration, just as a quick example. And forget about the intrigue and the relationships. People are very passionate a lot of times, one way or another, about immigration, whether people should be allowed into this country or not, and under what circumstances. And we're not going to go into that. But We totally could, though. We totally could. We're not going to. But issues like that, I think, also need to be in your political landscape in D&D. Not specifically immigration, but things that the people at large in the campaign are passionate both ways about. Totally. One of the easiest places to start with this... Um, is with, as, as much as I, like, hesitate to say this, is with, like, racism. Yeah. Right? Like, we've all seen it. If you don't think you've seen it... You've seen it. You just need to, like... I might offend somebody with this. You just need to kind of wake up a little bit, though. Yeah. Like, it's everywhere. So be real with yourself and, like, look around and, and pay attention to to racist speech or racist injustice. Um, because what you'll start to see is 
that it happens in the real world, and it's really easy to move that over without offending anybody into a Dungeons and Dragons mm-hmm. setting. It's very right. easy to do the elves hate the dwarves and the dwarves hate the elves. Right. It's not my favorite, but you know when you start paying attention to real racial injustice and how it happens, it's easy to make an oppressed class. Right. right? It can be really fun to make it so that half-elves are just kind of treated poorly by everyone. Not outright hated, but not really trusted. Totally. Yeah, and Dungeons and Dragons actually offers a lot of those options in the player's handbook, mm-hmm. and basically tells you how it's supposed to be, or at least they did in third edition. Yeah, and with half elves specifically in fifth edition, they do mention that they say half elves get along really well with all the races, but they never really fit in either with humans or elves, because both sides just assume that they're favoring one side over the other, right? And that they're just trying to play either the humans or the elves, depending on which side they're working with at the time. Totally, totally. So that's like a really easy starting point as far as making political tension, political issues. But like like Nathaniel said, there's a lot of other things that you can do as far as adding, you know, immigration issues or adding like, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? It's like culture, like the destruction of culture or like culture assimilation. Cultural right? assimilation, sure. Cultural assimilation into, because what, what you start to see is like w- with like the Romans, right? The Romans were pretty accepting, but they also kind of made everybody's religion into their one conglomerate religion. Right. Right? So it was like, get steamrolled by the Romans, and you can believe whatever you want, but we're also going to kind of put like a Roman wallpaper over it. Right. Um, And that's like a huge political issue, right? Colonization is a huge political issue. Um, Things like this, warfare, are really easy to start to work around. Uh, You know, the, the political welfare system and things like that are really easy issues to structure around. Let's talk about intrigue because yep. I think it's more interesting. I would agree. And maybe we'll devote a whole other session sometime to setting up interesting beliefs. But today we're going to talk about the intrigue. Yeah, I mean, we just talked for a minute about the interesting beliefs too. but No, but like how to, how to best use them yeah, and stuff. Sure. Best practices as it were. So let's talk about intrigue. So, Nathaniel, let's, let's make sure everybody's on the same page. What is intrigue? It's what's intriguing. Ah, zing. No, the if intri- I hadn't already made that pun, it probably would have been a really good one the second time I know, around. I know. Chucky uh, <laughs> uh, darn. Shucks deluxe. Put that one down in the books. No, but the intrigue is, I like to think of it as the relationships between other people and often the things that certain people involved in the politics know and other people don't and the leverage they use against each other. Totally, yeah. It's, it's the widespread manipulation of people in a political system. Right. There you go. That's a much more concise oh. way to say that. Sorry, I just channeled Daniel, Daniel Webster. That was His good. His spirit has just left my body. A piece of him lives inside of me, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. A part of him lives within me, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very good. Wow. You know what the best part is? You can't remember it? His name was Noah. <laughs> <laughs> or Daniel. I can never remember. Um, no, but it, it's the manipulations of complex social structures. Yeah, no, 100%. It's specifically manipulation of individual people, right? Right. So we start to talk about, about intrigue. Intrigue is all about dirt, right? Intrigue is all about Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedys. The that's skeletons kind of, in the closet. Yeah, that's what it's... Sometimes literally if they're a necromancer. Yeah, sometimes literal skeletons in literal closets, but not often, I would, I would imagine. But it's about who dislikes whom, who killed whom... Whose father killed whom? Who slept with whom? Right. Oh, man, get a good courtesan up in the mix, and you have got some intrigue. Because it turns out courtesans know everything. That all went over my head. I'm sorry. Do you know what a courtesan is? No. All right. Well, it's a prostitute. Sorry, listeners, if you have children at home. 
Um, just a nice way of saying prostitute. All right. I was just kind of being a little cagey, you know, because, like, I don't know who's out there listening. but Yeah, and I just didn't understand what nah, you were saying. you're good. You're good. So, yeah, prostitutes, they're great. They're yeah. Like a, good, a good courtesan yeah. um, is a really good way to give information to the players. Mm-hmm. This is a good prostitute knows everything. Right. Um, things like that. Uh, who has betrayed who? Who will betray whom? Mm-hmm. So let's talk about, like, like what the best way is to implement this, right? Right. I think the first thing that you need is a good structure. Okay. Right? So you mean, like, a good government or political structure? Is that what yes, you're saying? Yes, and by that I mean a bad one. Right, 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 right. right. We, we need a system where you've got the president... And the vice president. And for some obscure reason, the next in line is the speaker for the house. Right. <laughs> for, like, no clear reason. Right. Like, just a guy who's, like, mm, involved in the most ancillary ways in the things that the presidential cabinet does. Right? Right. Like, not to say they're not political and they're not intelligent people, but, like, they're not in the cabinet. Like, right. you would think, like, just to kind of keep it rolling, you might right, pick right. somebody from the cabinet. Uh, the more you can make the checks and balances in the government not work well together, mm. the better it is for you. So I'm going to use our government as an example. So you've got the three branches, right? You've got the legislative, the executive, and the Supreme Court. Or One might call it a three-ring circus. A three-ring circus, as it has been called many a time. <laughs> a very tongue-in-cheek way of referencing the whole shebang. Right. But in one, you've got our Congress who write the laws. You've got the president who basically enforces the laws. And you've got the Supreme Court, which decides what the laws mean. Yeah. And, and that three-ring circus, it's a fine one, son. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But let's say that you take essentially that system and you implement it in a fantasy setting but instead of the president being elected he's now a monarch and he he gets his power because he's born into it sure butterfly president right right a little bit of a twist but i'm into it sure he is a literal butterfly flaps his wings and sends out decrees you thought (laughs) you thought the mothman was cool Right. I just imagine this dude with butterfly wings flying over a city just yelling, Decree! Decree! <laughs> decree! And then, like, landing good. on a flower for a minute. Oh, man. And then that... taken back off. Yeah, exactly. Was that the writing section? I think we did it. I think we did it. And we got nice. It High five. Try. Nailed it. Uh, no, but now he is not elected by the people like he is in our system, and he's born into it. And after enough generations, you get somebody on the throne who's just not cut out for it. Whether... Yeah, that, that number, by the way, just if history has shown us anything, that number is two generations. Yeah. Just like speaking generally, a generous three. Right. It does not take long uh, before somebody who's just totally inept for the job comes yep. into it. Yep. Or worse, like knows enough to be dangerous, right? Right, but not enough to be good like knows where the coffers are mm-hmm. but doesn't know anything else he knows how to get the money and that's it yeah uh and so all of a sudden then you have the other two branches almost definitely are trying to manipulate this monarch to suit their own needs because if they can tip the balance in their favor one way or the other sure then yay for them yeah, 100%. Another thing that really helps with establishing this is to have a really good foreign world set up, right? Yes. Even if you just have like a simple manipula- manipulated monarch at the head of your your country and he doesn't have checks and balances, just in- introducing more shrewd or more sly leaders around him is going to amp up that level of intrigue, right? Yeah. Um, people will immediately pretend to be his friends, right? Obviously. People will 
try to to intimidate or to threaten him. People are going to try and and play it aloof, but in the background make plans that will allow them to secure the throne. Right. right. Uh, George Orwell wrote a horrific book called 1984. It was not his only horrific book. No. I had not the one I thought you were going to pick either. No. But keep going. He, he kind of was a horror writer in my opinion. Well, he wrote something. He wrote a lot of political yeah. business. He's a, good, he's a good pick for this. Yeah. In 1984, though... There's this really dense scene where one of the characters is reading a book about political structures in the world he currently lives in. Oh, I forgot about that. But Yeah, it is a dense scene. But I think it's useful for our purposes here. And he talks about how there's essentially only three countries in the world anymore. There's the country the person lives in, which I think is London or England or whatever. But it's yeah. basically Europe. Yep. There's the US, and I think there's like Russia, essentially. Those are the three World. <laughs> wonder where Orwell got that idea. <laughs> right. I wonder where. Uh, but in these three different countries, what happens is in each country, they all do the same thing. They have somebody who's a scapegoat that the public can hate, and they always say that the scapegoat is allied with whichever of their two enemies seems to be the strongest at the moment. Right. So if your scapegoat, we're going to call him Mr. White because I can't remember the name they use in the book. But Mr. White is... How about Jones? How about Farmer Jones? How about Farmer Jones? I like that better. Farmer Jones, dang it, Animal Farm, does the exact same thing. I know. No, Animal Farm is the same book as 1984. Untrue. No. Categorically untrue. Super untrue. untrue. Deals with a lot of the same themes. I have a podcast, so I now have to say debate me, bro. No, but it does deal with a lot of the same themes. It deals with similar themes, but continue. And in a lot of the same ways. Continue. Um, But Farmer Jones is allied with Russia. But as soon as the people start gaining power against Russia or the U.S. starts getting strong enough to take down England, Farmer Jones is all of a sudden allied with England. Yeah. I mean, or with the U.S. or whatever. And you sure. just kind of keep switching it back and forth. Or maybe it's Snowball. I was going to say that keep, my joke was it keeps things from snowballing out of control, but you, you rushed it. That's all right. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's good. I'm sorry. We're good. I was this close. I was literally about to drop that line. But So yeah. what my point here is if you want to create a really good political system, you should always have at least three parties that are uh, opponents of each other that can totally. make treaties, but they know that making they a treaty... they can break treaties, too. But they can break treaties. And the thing is, they can't ever focus on completely destroying one enemy because if they do, the other enemy will swoop in and destroy them. Right. It creates a very tenuous sort of peace. So we've talked a little bit about that and how you can really make it moderately interesting you know we've given some general principles yeah um nothing too specific i don't think but it works best in a general sense sure i'd and say feel, generally feel free to tweet at us if you want us to talk about it more specifically I'm yeah not. i think that this is one that we could easily talk about for several oh, episodes yeah, yeah yeah totally because politics i mean like totally. you can become a I political mean, we science we major. haven't even we haven't even talked about like the kinds of figures you could have like you could have an old major yeah or a boxer No? Okay. You want me to run with this, but I don't have anywhere to run. <laughs> okay, that's fine. No runway. No runway towards more animal farm jokes. That's fine. Uh, I gave sorry. it the old college What about the donkey? Try. The donkey? The, the donkey. Good one. Good one. That is some Shrek in Animal Farm crossover content. Yes. That I think, because the donkey is the animal, but the name you used is from Shrek, which is donkey. Right, right. Obviously. We're good. We're and good we need though. more Shrek content always. Oh, yeah. It's the most Shrek-cellent thing we can do. No, but... Man, I would have watched an Animal Farm Shrek crossover. 
the MCU with Shrek. Oh, uh, oh, that's just so bad. No, but now let's be totally blunt. Hopefully, as the listener here, you've started thinking about ways you can implement this in your world and whatnot. Uh, I'm going to tell you right now, whatever you're thinking is probably kind of boring. Sorry, whatever I'm thinking right now or the listener? The listener. And maybe you. I, I'll, I'll be honest, I got a little distracted coming up with, Somebody once told me Thanos was gonna roll me. He snapped and now half of us are dead. That was good. I, I know. Was very good. So that was going through my head, so I'm gonna need you to roll back and repeat. No, so whatever political system you're probably thinking of, and you're thinking, oh, this would be so cool to put in my campaign. Yeah, it's probably a little dry. It's probably sure. super dry. And... Unless you're doing what I'm about to tell you to do, I can. it's just probably boring. But if you're doing what I'm going to tell you to do, it's probably not as boring as I'm thinking it is. You need to make sure your players somehow get involved in the politics. Totally. For those who have read Game of Thrones, uh, the most interesting part of the first book, A Game of Thrones, is that the main protagonist of that book, uh, Ned Stark... Man, I'm going to really have to dance around spoilers here. But spoiler he, territory. You are entering okay, it for yeah, Game of yeah, Thrones. Okay, yeah, there it is. You're entering spoiler territory. We're just gonna we're just gonna go for it. So uh, Ned Stark becomes aware that the the main heir to the Iron Throne in Westeros is not the son of the king. Yeah. Simply put, right? And he figures that out through the whole thing. It plays like a mystery in a lot of ways, right? Um, and that's what makes it compelling is that he's following this mystery. There's some stuff happening on the sides of other characters, but that's the main thread. Right for this book. Yeah. Well, yeah, because he gets beheaded at the end of it. Spoilers. Wild. Like that's that's why people like it though, right? Because nothing was ever definitive. You go along with him for that journey, and then you have to you have to find somebody else to cling to. You're like in the middle of an ocean with just a bunch of wreckage around you, right? Yeah. Um, but what makes it compelling is that because Ned Stark doesn't know who has done what. You follow that journey because you don't know either, right? You have no idea. You have a couple of, of useful images from other parts of the book, but for the most part, you're following Ned to discover that that Joffrey, whom everybody hates, is not the rightful heir to the Iron Throne. Right, right? and Ned is essentially the player character. Yeah, totally. That's that's uh, that's what I'm driving at. Is that because it, the reason people liked that book, in my opinion, is because you can follow along with Ned, mm-hmm. and and he can be your kind of your avatar, yeah. if you will, walking through the world. Absolutely. So how do you incorporate the players into the political systems? Well, again, to pull from Game of Thrones, Ned Stark is just chilling, bad and bougie up in Winterfell, and then the king comes on a boar hunting trip. Ridiculous. <laughs> he comes on a boar hunting trip, I think, and he's like, hey, you want to be like the hand of the king? Right. Like, do you? So, like, he's literally drawn into it. And then once the king dies is when the heir thing becomes important. And Ned is stuck with this political power that he never really wanted in the first place. He just wanted to be Lord of Winterfell because it's actually pretty chill up there, no pun intended. Um, but, like, you can do that with your players, right? You can bring them into something that like, they necessarily weren't looking for. Right. right? So I, I think the quest giver has the job of bringing them into the political structure as well. Sure. I think that's one of the two ways to do it. I think the other is the quest giver or the quest itself has them meet all of the different political groups with various pretenses of, oh, we're here to help the players or we have these goals and we can work with you. And 
let the players discover good and bad things about all the political parties. Yeah. I like that approach. Uh, my, my downside with it is it does take a little longer. It takes a lot longer. Um, the benefit is that it lets them kind of form their own opinions mm-hmm. about the world, right? I'll call that approach the, the white sand approach, right? Brandon Sanderson's white sand, for those sure. who are familiar with that work, takes a really similar approach with that main character where a good segment of that story... Uh, requires the main character to meet with like political leader after political leader after mm-hmm. political leader and form his own opinions yep. um, as far as what's going on there. And you as the reader get to kind of go along with him. Um, where the And that's like the option where the players are kind of carving out their own space as political forces in their own right. Yep. But I, I'm with you. I think those are the two main ways to involve the players. Either directly involve them with one of the political forces at play or have them meet at, at different times all the political forces. 100%. 100%. Um, that's like also, oh, you could go for a third approach. Oh, okay. The Dark Souls approach. Okay. The Bloodborne approach. We will make political factions. I think there are seven in Bloodborne. What? How many did you find, dog? There's political factions in Bloodborne? Dude, there's a lot of I have pumped so them. many hours into that game. There's a lot of them. I, I mean, I'm feigning surprise a little bit because that's one of those games that like I've played and I've realized, yeah, I scratched the surface of the lore here. Yeah. The lore is wild in Bloodborne, too. But there's seven factions? Yeah, I think seven. Wow. Including in expansions. The expansion content. The DLC. Do I have the DLC? No, you don't. Oh. It's called The Old Hunters. Huh. It's cool. I don't know. Noted. A lot of people like it. Anyway, um, that's neither here nor there, though. The Dark Souls route is this idea that like there are factions, and you just might not interact with them in the course of like working through the, the overall plot or the narrative. Are some of them like in the churches and stuff? The church is a faction. The church the itself healing, is a faction. The healing okay. church is a faction. Are the hunters another faction? Mm. Or are they just kind of this weird... We'll hop off of the Bloodborne yeah, train. Yeah, Hunters of Hunters, I think, is a faction. Okay, but let's point this out, though. This is this game that I pumped 60 to 100 hours into. Didn't even... Vile Bloods? Did you join the Vile Bloods? Maybe? Yes. Yes, I did join the Vile Bloods. Yeah. I do remember the Vile yeah, so Bloods. so they're one of them. You can join, like competing factions in that game like the, sure. the game is not actually that interested in politics but that's just another way to do it right where they're kind of there the players don't need to get involved but they can, they can. that's really cool that yeah. i didn't even realize that those factions existed yep huh so so let's work let, let's world build let's make Ooh, a political system. i thought we already did this did we did you not hear me saying decree 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 earlier no 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 with uh with with <laughs> monarch <Man>. king <laughs> mothman no his name is monarch king if somebody wants to make artwork of monarch king Please we do. need a better name for him if, if we're going to request that. Um, okay, you write something. I'm going to come up with a better name for Monarch King. Listeners, if you have an idea for something better than Monarch, no, 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 no. Come on, come on. Tweet us keep it. going, keep going. It'll come to me. Okay, so we're going to do a political system. I'm going to borrow a little bit from somebody else's world building. So the Dragonborn in this world are not Dragonborn as the 5e rules lay them out, at least not lore-wise. The Dragonborn in this world are created by the King's Wizards about 200 years ago. Okay. And they they used to be the King's main enforcers, just like his main political army. But then the King died and the Kingdom got taken over by somebody else and Dragonborn became illegal. Okay. So you can still play as a dragonborn in this world, but by being a dragonborn, you are li- your existence is literally illegal in the world. So let's start there. Okay. Why would somebody want to make the dragonborn illegal? Well, 
Sorry, I'm still trying to go over the good name here. It's actually harder than I thought it was going to be. I know. Um, one of the one of the main things I think that would cause you to want to make a, a faction illegal, right? You see this in Eberron with the Warforged. Flutterduke. Oh, Flutterduke is good. It does sound like a Pokemon. The Flutterduke. Anyway, I didn't even think I was I was just hung up on like the king or like sovereign ruler. But I got thing. Flutter, and I started thinking what could go with Flutter. Anyway, Flutterduke. If you come up with something better, let me know. Yeah, I'm working on it. But anyway, Dragonborn are illegal. I think a good reason to make them illegal is to ultimately create an ostracized class that you can gerrymander into your own place, right? Okay, so what do you mean by gerrymander into your own place? Well, not to get too much on my political soapbox, um, but it's clear from reading... Okay, I'm going to try to not take a political opinion here, but it's clear from reading works of political theorists and specifically economic theorists like Marx that capitalism has to have an oppressed society. Right. <laughs> if you can, if you can, like, there just has to be a lower class in capitalism. There just, yeah. like, there has to be a working Not class, everybody can be wealthy, right? otherwise you, there are there no wealthy. There has to be proletariats to the bourgeoisie, right? right. That's just the way capitalism works. Not to, like, pass a moral judgment on that. Capitalism has to function that way. Otherwise, it's not capitalism. It's something else. Right. Right? Um, so, part of the reason you might want to do it is because you want to foster that oppressed class into something that is manufactured, rather than something that is organically created, right? So, like, I imagine that it stems from a view of the dragonborn as lesser citizens, right? Or as dangerous citizens. Yeah. And so you want to create them as... You want to slot them into the the oppressed society, right? An aristocracy also requires an oppressed society. A theocracy also requires an an oppressed society, depending on how you you view oppression. Right. You could skirt around it in a theocracy if you wanted. A meritocracy has to have a an oppressed society. Right. right? It's an us versus them mentality. Totally. Totally. And so a republic has to have an oppressed society. There has to be a, a society that is is somehow kept from enlightenment in in a republic. Right? That's just the structure requires it. Sure. Whether they're keeping themselves from that enlightenment or not. All of these structures, with the exception of like baseline democracy and like pure communism require right and so that's like everywhere right right and even real like in practice democracy and communism also have oppressed classes right so again i think the idea is that you would want to slot somebody into that oppressed class to avoid you know your friends or your family or your kinsfolk being put there accidentally or organically right if you can manufacture the oppressed class it solves a lot of problems because you've now created a, a cushion that protects people who may be in your circle of influence. Okay, very good, very good. So then, how do you make this interesting for the players? Let's pretend none of the players are dragonborn. Right? Okay. Because if they're dragonborn, it's easy how to make that interesting. Right? Because they are an illegal... The Tsar who flies afar? The Tsar who flies afar? <laughs> Keep going. I'm working on Oh, it. okay, the butterfly name. Sure, I'm working sure. on the it. The Tsar who flies afar. I like that. That's good. That's good. Uh, I still like Flutterduke, but I might Flutter like Duke the Flutterduke is really good. <laughs> I think I might like the Tsar who flies afar as well, too. Uh, no, but if you're not one of, if you're not playing a Dragonborn, how is the Dragonborn conflict interesting? How do you make that relevant to your players? This is also the question literally all politicians have to ask themselves whenever they're Right, using, campaigning. Whenever they're campaigning. How do you make whatever issue relevant to the people you're campaigning? Yeah, 100%. Um, I mean, Dragonborn friends are always good. 
Dragonborn friends are good. Like, when you look at similar conflicts, right, where, like, for example, take, like, the the crisis that we have with homosexual and trans folks in the U.S. right now. Sure. The reason that that has become such a hot-button issue instead of them just being relegated to an oppressed class like they have been for hundreds of years is because now people have friends who are, like, right. coming out of the closet, right? That, like, I have friends and professors who fit into those categories. That's what I'm saying. You need to have... The problem is that no oppressed society can free themselves from oppression. It right. just It can't be done. You need to have allies, right? And so friends, make them friends of Dragonborn is always, like have them interact with Dragonborn in meaningful ways yeah. is, like, a brilliant way to do it. Um, it isn't the only way, I don't think. Uh, when you look at, at other th- other things, too, I mean, are, what side do we want them to fall on this political debate? I'd like them to have the choice. Okay, like, well, but, like, realistically make it so they have a choice. I, it's hard for me to structure realistic arguments the other way. But let's say, like, the Dragonborn are stealing all of our jobs. <laughs> like... <laughs> no, 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 no. Here's the easy way. Um, and I mean this. You do have a terrorist group of Dragonborn. Yeah, totally. Who, totally. Uh, that'll, that'll the Black it. Panthers in the 60s. Totally. Or uh, Al-Qaeda recently. Right. right. Or ISIS recently. Right. And But what you do then, because it's a D&D or any role-playing game, and you are able then to put the players in fantastical situations, you have them have to confront these terrorist groups. Totally. Yeah, I, you know, it's important to note, too, that, like, when, if, if you have, like, a militant leader of Dragonborn, and they encounter him, he can be a bad guy. Yeah. Right? Like, like leaders of terrorist groups are often radicalized to the point of that makes them difficult to reason with. Yeah. Their rationale might be easy to understand and follow, but they have a hard time of following other people's rationale. And a a big fantasy mistake that that writers and, well, maybe not a mistake, but a big trope that's fallen into is like the the people live in like a racist or a a racially oppressed society and they meet the, the militant leader of the other group and they realize that they're not so bad after all. Right. When like no, like, the Black Panthers were causing trouble. Like, it's deeper than that, right? It's right. significantly deeper. But, like, they were, like, militant dudes. Like, right. It, again, it doesn't say anything about African Americans at all. No. But, like... It says something about a specific group of people who were African American. Totally, totally. But I, not about African Americans, right. Yeah, and it, it's a it's a difficult thing, but having your character encounter you know, actual people who have actual stories and actual... I I hate to always do this, but, like, man, it so much on the writing side has to really come from your part if you want it to go well. Yep. You really just have to... You don't have to script everything. You, know, you could get away with it. Um, but that's what you need to do is you just need to think about it and you need to write a compelling reason why the characters should get along with certain people of, of race or of class or of social structure and why they shouldn't. Can I up the ante one more bit for you? Sure. So, you have a dungeon scenario where in the dungeon they meet a dragonborn who either needs their help or is helping the party somehow. But whether he needs their help or he helps them, they work together with this dragonborn. And we learn that this dragonborn is a little bit desperate. You know, he's just he's on hard times because he's part of this oppressed group of people. Um, but he's a pretty good guy. The party likes him. You write him to be likable to the party dynamics. And then, after they meet the terrorist group for the first time, they should have another encounter with this dragonborn where it's obvious that he's been listening to the rhetoric of the terrorist group. Right. And then you have this 
personal moral conundrum of we like this guy and he might side with a group that we do not agree with. Totally. Totally. There's a, uh, you know, it doesn't, it probably doesn't bear mentioning, uh, but Robert Jordan actually does that several times in his real time series. And it's part of what makes it so compelling. People who are familiar with that series will remember the tinker with the sword. Yep. Who, who is a really interesting. Amram? Aram. Aram. Yeah. Um, Really interesting etymological background on his name, by the way. Oh, um, we'll talk about that sometime. Yeah. Anyway, um, he, but yeah, that kind of thing where there's characters who fall for a rhetoric. There are characters who, in that series as well, who who fall for less harmful rhetoric, but rhetoric that is still. I mean, again, people who are familiar will know will know Galad. Who's mm-hmm. a character who very early in that series falls for some some pretty heavy-handed religious rhetoric mm-hmm. that tends to be pretty harmful. Yeah, there's some people who who fall into some very serious. Uh, That's another really good book meritoc- series on politics. Yeah, fall into some pretty serious uh, meritocratic ideals as well as some some pretty ar- ar- aristocratic yeah ideals um, that they, they just kind of fall hook, line, and sinker into mm-hmm. when they probably shouldn't. And most of them are, are pretty good people, yeah. actually. Despite falling into these lines of rhetoric that end up harming all of their relationships. All of their relationships. Yeah. In totally foreseeable ways. Totally, yeah. It's no, really it's, good. It's really good. Um, so that's, a, I guess, a reference text if you have time for 14 books. If you have time for 14,000 pages. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's less time, than that. But it's, audiobook, it's like, though. The audiobooks are great. Yeah. Um, but it is like 10,000 pages. Totally. Yeah, it's nuts. It's something else. Uh, well, I think it's about time for us to step behind the screen. Before we do that, though... <laughs> have we not done that yet? We have what not. Are we, like, 40 minutes in? Yeah, something like that. Do you want to go beg for some stuff? Let's, let's do the beggar's corner, yeah. Pale moon hangs above Catahoula Lake, casting ghastly shadows into the nearby forest. The occasional chitter from a nocturnal animal breaks the near-perfect silence, and the water ripples softly as a light breeze blows across the cold, unforgiving surface of the lake. We follow those ripples to the other side of the lake, where we see a stately manor, its porch facing the waterfront. The centuries-old paint is peeled, revealing ancient, rotting wood. The wispy web of a violin spider spreads itself across the doorway. It's clear nobody has been to this estate in years. Even the few rangers that watch over the Catahoula National Wildlife Refuge have forgotten this place exists, though you could probably find a note about it buried under a mess of folders in one of the rusting filing cabinets at the refuge's office. We look up to the upper floor of the manor home, where a steady blue light shines from a window on the east side. The wind picks up, stirring reeds and willows, and rattling the old shutters that make a frail attempt at covering the manor's windows. As the wind begins to howl, we see the blue glow in the window brighten until it shines blindingly. Then, as if on cue, the wind stops, and the light suddenly goes out. The dark, black waters of Catahoula Lake fall still, glassily reflecting the moon above, and the night is silent once again. 22 hours later and 31 miles away, just off of Highway 28, the sun sets on the sleepy town of Cordefleur. 
Like every Friday night, most of the people in town have gone in already. But if you listen, you can hear motors revving as some of the wilder boys from Moreau High School Piau onto the 28, racing rusted-out Hondas and decrepit Fords against the blue and red lights that will inevitably follow. On Rousseau Drive, you can hear the sounds of a neighborhood barbecue dying off as friends slowly scatter back to their homes. On Pickler Street, you can hear the melodies of Marissa Chen's nightly piano practice, which lilts out of the open parlor window of her parents' home. Wing Baron. Wing Baron. You nailed it. <laughs> the Wing Baron. It was in there. I knew it was deep inside. Flutter Duke is good. Oh, Flutter Duke and Wing Baron are a dynamic duo. <laughs> With their enemy, the Czar from afar. <laughs> the Czar who flies afar. Thank please. you. The Czar who flies afar. <laughs> uh, it's very good. It's very good. Anyone who wants to make artwork, please do. Oh, man. So, yeah, welcome to the Beggar's Corner. It's part of the show where we tell you how you can contact us, which is through the Instagrams and the tweeters. Yep. Please send a live pigeon to... That's probably where Twitter comes <laughs> yeah, from. Yeah, dog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where have I been? You know, it's crazy. Back in those days, they could only fit 160 characters on a piece of paper. It was like a rule. Huh. And then you had to, like, tape multiple, but it was considered polite to, like, write thread on the side of the pigeon. Gotcha. <laughs> you did it. No, they didn't write thread on the side of the pigeon. They tied, they tied a thread. Th- no, they, like, sewed it through. <laughs> through the pigeon? Yes. Holy no. cow. No, through the papers that you put on the pigeon, you fool. True. It was literally tied with a thread. Uh, Welcome I, to the beggar's quarter. Well, yeah, and then we evolved to the Pony Express. We've yet to transcend to Wing Duke Mail. Wing Duke <laughs> Mail. Wing Baron. Wing, Wing Baron, Baron Mail. Which would be the ultimate way. Just some dude with a bunch of... Ma- Yo, next Zelda game, though. Actual mailman suggestion. Not a joke. Get us the Wing Baron. It'd be so good. I'd love it. <laughs> uh, no, but you can reach us at an Instagram or tweet- Twitter. At, Twitter. At initiative underscore roll. Roll, of course, is spelled yep. like the show. R-O-L-E. And then we do have our email address, initiativeroll at gmail.com, along with our blog, initiative.com. Initiativeroll.blogspot.com. I yep. always trip over that. Yeah, literally every episode that you've done it. Yep. <laughs> every single one. No, there were a few that we congratulated me for not doing That's it. That's true. That's true. And I will hold those memories dear. <sighs> won't we all? Won't we all? Hopefully by season seven, which we're contractually obligated to make. Right, right. You'll, you'll have shaken that. At that point, it also needs to be a cinematic universe. It also needs to be initiative. <laughs> Yo. Godzilla, King of the Monsters, with Wing Baron and Flutter Duke. Yes. Uh, when are Wing Baron and Flutter Duke going to get added to the Marvel Cinematic Universe? This is the question. That's what I want to know. They probably won't get picked up probably. by Marvel. Probably they'll get picked up by DC. <laughs> That's not true. Uh, they're going to get picked up by Marvel with Ziggy and Zitz <laughs> and Hagar the Horrible. I'm ready. <laughs> when is Garfield going to get a comic book movie? Oh, man. Uh, oh, this rabbit train has wandered far. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, what a callback to our most popular bit, Rabbit Train. Choo-choo. Well, speaking of callbacks to popular bits, uh, today's dedication actually is going to a comedian, technically, I think. Yeah, he is my best friend. He is our dungeon master, our best friend, Griffin McElroy. Uh, Those who are familiar with the McElroy brothers' work know that they are just big doofuses. They're huge doofuses. Just the biggest doofuses, but, you know, it's endearing in a way. Uh, My my first introduction to the McElroy brothers was uh, when Justin and Griffin 
McElroy were working at Polygon.com, they started a series called Monster Factory. <laughs> that was my first intro, too. Yeah, where they, they hop into game creators and create just the most horrific beings. They're terrifying. So we create. Um, really good, really good, uh, uh, just some good content, capital C content that they created over there. Uh, they also have a podcast, uh, My Brother, My Brother and Me, which is a show where the three of them give advice and make jokes. Uh, they do a show called, uh, Justin and his wife do a show called Sawbones, Medical History. Uh, they're Schmanners. Travis I have heard that Sydney also does a show just with her sisters. Called Still Buffering. Yeah. I was a teenager and so was I. I am a teenager and so was I is the tagline for that. Um, That's good. That's yeah, it's, good. it's about uh, advice getting through your teenage years. That's a show that they do. Oh, cool. Um, Travis and Therese do one called Schmanners. Griffin and Rachel do one called Wonderful. Um, there's a lot of really... They, the family itself creates a lot of podcasts. But uh, what I want to talk about is, is Griffin's brainchild, uh, which is a little something called The Adventure Zone. Uh, it's a solid actual play podcast that we've certainly referenced here several times. Um, it goes through a couple of different arcs. Uh, most recently, the Adventures on Amnesty, which is uh, actually uses Monster of the Week and is, is a heavy inspiration for our work that we've done in Monster mm-hmm. of the Week, though. Uh, it has some pretty notable differences. Uh, one that theirs is a lot more streamlined and does not take as long. Um, yeah. They don't do it over text. They don't do it over text. And... And it's, uh, I don't know, it has its, it wanders a bit, but that's all right. I'm still listening to it, so no spoilers. Yeah, oh man, that, that goes some places. But ultimately, we, we decided to dedicate to this because, uh, I mean, is it a spoiler to say? It is totally a spoiler to say. You will okay. keep your mouth shut. Cool. Are you sure? Yes, I am sure. I think sure. they should know. I think they already know if they've been listening to the Can episodes. I, nope, you no, gotta keep I your mouth shut. Nope. I, I made this. Nope. Bop, 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 bop. Covering the mic doesn't stop sound. <laughs> In fact, no. we're putting our listeners in an audio cage right now. I'm doing my best. Hey, if you guys meet a butler and a chef in there, tell them what's about to happen. You know. You read the book. <laughs> you read the Bible. Oh, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps it was the Torah, depending on your religious inclination. True. Uh, or maybe you just saw the musical. Yep. <laughs> or maybe the DreamWorks production. <laughs> oh, shoot. If you haven't been exposed to this story somehow, it's, it's probably about time you realize, like... It's everywhere. Yeah. Um, and if you if your friends haven't heard the story, hey, that's some good D and D content right there. Yeah, it is. <laughs> some good, some good stuff. But anyway, this one, uh, wow, we really wandered quite a bit there. But this one's going to Griffin McElroy for his work with Monster of the Week, introducing me to that podcast, and ultimately. So this is crazy, coming back from the Beggar's Corner. Some of you are probably going to wonder what happened to my sentence there at the end. Oh, man. Uh, so our sound studio that we're recording in didn't come with a professional sound recorder. Um, it, came it, came with, with, it came with your resident onion master. <laughs> or your resident evil, as we call him. Um, yeah, so he just decided my sentence wasn't important. And I guess that's fine. Uh, it wasn't really going anywhere anyway. I was just about to profess my love for Griffin McElroy on national radio, so... It's not that big of International a radio. Uh, no. Because we are international businessmen. We are international businessmen. Um, but alas, uh, I guess that sentence was never just meant to I'm be. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry, so, listeners. Yeah. Uh, let's go behind the screen before I lose my freaking cool. Okay, Andy. <laughs> Somebody put, tell me who put my calculator in jello right now. Uh, what have we got on Doc for behind the screen today? 
<laughs> you asking Google Assistant? Yes. I, I don't think Google Assistant knows there, bud. Uh, behind the screen, we're talking about uh, endings. Oh, yes. Now, for those of you who've been long-time listeners, you already know this, but new-time listeners, behind the screen is where we talk about the things you do behind the screen that your players don't necessarily see the workings of. They will often see your world building, but they won't usually see whatever's behind the screen. Yeah, and I'll be upfront about this. Uh, this particular section of, of behind the screen actually comes from a campaign that we're in right now. Um, we, we've actually been talking with a dungeon master we're playing with right now, and he had expressed some, some questions about, like, how do we feel about ending the session? How do we feel about continuing? Where do we feel like we are? Um, and it's been something that's weighing on our mind recently. So we decided it might be a good idea to, you know, rather than, like, talk about it and come to any conclusive decisions, we just decided, you know what, let's not burn podcast content, and let's just come to our opinions on how do you end a session live on radio, uh, which is going to be really fun. So let me talk about how I ended a most recent session that I was playing that you were not part of. Okay. What happened is they had this really cool fight, and it could have been a great place to end it, but I said, no, no, no. I intended for them to meet these NPCs, and so these NPCs showed up, and they said, you are under arrest for your crimes. Okay. And then I said, okay, let's meet next week. Yeah. Good cliffhanger. Good right. So we're talking about ending sessions right now, then. Right. Cool. And so let's talk about the cliffhanger. I think cliffhangers are are the best thing you can end a session on, unless it's your last session, but we'll totally. talk about that. Yeah, oh, don't don't end your last session on a cliffhanger. Sorry, I just had to send a pointed glance to somebody who ended their last session on a cliffhanger. Um, <laughs> but yeah, why are you kissing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it does sound like that. Yes, it does. <laughs> that was me just kind of going, well, what's up, Doc? But yeah, no, ending your session on a cliffhanger is a great idea. Now, you got to be careful. Okay. Uh, Brandon Sanderson has talked about a lot about this in his writing advice, that if you end on the wrong cliffhanger, yes. you can really disappoint your audience, right? Yeah. For example, ending on the cliffhanger, and there's a knock at the door. This is the example he always uses, right? Yeah, and I think it's such a good example. Ending on the cliffhanger, there's a knock at the door. And then the chapter or the episode or whatever or ends. The adventure ends. No matter what's behind that door, it's not going to be interesting. Unless you have incorporated Wonka Vision, and then there is a snack. Ah. Like an Uber Eats behind the door. Like they, they turn the page of the book and, and there's, there's like, like a, a chocolate dude bar like a waiting yeah, for yeah, them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like Or like a hollowed out section of the book with some lifesavers maybe. Yeah. Um, unless you can... It'll that. probably be confusing AF, but like they'll be like, ooh, candy. <laughs> yeah. If, you, if they open that door and a literal raven flies out, yeah. that would be good too. Just screaming nevermore. <laughs> Um, no, but that can be a bad cliffhanger because no matter what the next sentence is, it's going to be a disappointment. Right, and it's because of where you chose to split it. Right. Right? Can you imagine if episode four had ended with Luke meeting Darth Vader and then the beginning of episode five was like, I am your father and that whole thing? Or maybe five and six like that? Like, yeah, exactly. Ugh. Can you imagine? Like, uh... Now, if it was a TV show, on the other hand, real quick, and like... Luke was Luke lands on Cloud City, and Han gets frozen in carbonite, and the and then he's and then you see Vader. I'm gonna get a lot of hate for this. Those movies are ridiculous. So Luke lands on Han City, and there he is, Han Solo, frozen in carbonite. Yeah, uh, but no, and Luke sees Vader, and like the episode ends there, and the next episode is just their fight and ends with Vader saying no. I am your father. I don't think it's great, but it's better. Yeah. You've chopped it better. Yeah. Right? Um, 
Ideally, though, you want to have all of the important information in a scene contained in one segment. And then you want to have just the bare hint of a lead-in to the next scene mm -hmm. as your cliffhanger. This is what will actually get your players to come back to your next session? Yeah, that's the difficulty um, that you'll have if you if you can't manage, manage cliffhangers mm -hmm. well. Right? Yeah. So what's the example Brandon Sanderson gives with the knock at the door? Because I think his example is really good. Yeah, I don't remember. I was just oh, okay. So what he says is, picture this instead. He opened the door, and his father was sitting there. Oh, yeah, there. yeah, 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 yeah. And, I mean, we're assuming there's already some narrative tension with his dad. And you know that just by the fact that his father was the one behind the door, and that's where the chapter ends, that crap is going to go down. Like, this is going to be a tense next chapter. But if instead you cut, there was a knock at the door, and then the next chapter starts with, it was his father. And it's like, well, the mystery's revealed. But, totally. Yeah, it's just different. Yeah, so uh, so we've talked a little bit about how to parse those up a little bit. Let's talk about when not to do it. Because I think there's some yeah. really easy mistakes that people fall into thinking like, this will be a bomb cliffhanger when it just isn't. There's just... So let, let's, let's go biblical again. Okay. Another story people are probably really familiar is the prodigal son, right? This idea, let, just for like the meta-narrative for people who may not be familiar with it, uh, one of the, the stories in the New Testament, um, like pretty standard Christian fare, is is that Jesus told the story of a guy who his son essentially goes and wastes a bunch of money, um, leaves the house, squanders his part of his dad's inheritance, that whole bit, and then comes back and his dad essentially accepts him regardless of the mistakes that he's made. Is kind of the, the gist of the right, story, that's right? that's the... Um, yeah. But the big turn of that story is that when the, the son is coming back, his dad sees him from afar off and runs up to him, right? Let's take that as our, our base scene here, right? There is... That, that should never be parsed. Nope. <laughs> there is no place in that scene for a cliffhanger. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like can you... Like, anywhere is going to be awkward, right? The yeah. earliest place you can cut it is saying, like, and there he walked towards his father's lands. That's the earliest place you can cut it. And if you're going to cut it, that has to be the end of your story. Like, you can't have anything interesting follow that. No, you can have, like, another chapter. Sure, but what I mean is, like, the next chapter is him making peace with his dad, and his dad instantly accepts him without changing the story. Like, the only thing you can do to make parsing it there or cutting it there interesting, I think, is to have it be the end. Well, there's a lot of stuff that happens with the brother. There is a lot right? of stuff that happens so with the So, like, that's deeper into the story, more deep than I was intending to go. But, like, you have to parse, like, he headed back to his father's land. Otherwise, anything else doesn't make sense. Like, think about cutting it anywhere else, right? And then his dad started running at running at him. Cut. Bad cliffhanger. Bad cliffhanger. His dad ran at him and hugged him. Bad cliffhanger. The his son says... Dad, I screwed up. Cut it. <laughs> Bad, Bad cliffhanger. Mm. The, his dad is like, it's okay, son. Let's go have a party. Bad cliffhanger. The party. Bad cliffhanger. Like, all of these are bad places to cut because there's no inherent tension. Part of the, the tension that you'll get by cutting there at the early part and saying, like, hey, he's head back to his father's lands, is you get this tension of, like, really anything can happen here. Right. Again, in the in the context of the Bible, we all know what's going to happen. Right. It's kind of hard to spoil a book that's been in the public domain since before the public domain existed. Right. <laughs> but you see what I'm trying to say. You see yes. the point that I'm making. Yeah, absolutely. And so the other thing, too, is it's not always right to end with some sort of cliffhanger. Sure. Just at all. That's I think that's the point you're trying to make here. And so if you think of your stories as like seasons of a TV show or books in a series, sometimes it's okay to just end on like a, 
more or less, you finished what you came out to do, though there is still a general threat or a general everything's not right in the world going on. Uh, a great example of this is the the Hobbit. So they go out, they rescue the Lonely Mountain from Smog, they take it back, and the treasure is divided up, and the dwarves reclaim the Lonely Mountain. Uh, but, like, there is still lots of room in that world for things to be going on. I mean, the goblins aren't all dead, for instance. Sure. The elves are still kind of pricks. Head cannon. <laughs> the Hobbit is a prequel to Labyrinth. No further explanation needed. Keep Fair going. enough. Uh, but then Lord, Lord of the Rings was sprung from that. Right. Which is like three or four times the length of The Hobbit. Significantly less interesting. I might, Though thematically I might, more powerful. Yeah. I might agree with you on the less interesting. I think The Hobbit makes a much more fun bedtime oh, story. The for films sure. are significantly better too for Lord yeah, of the Rings. Yeah, obviously. Um, it's just not. I don't know. Yeah. T Tolkien and I would we'd throw some elbows if we met in, in a dark Particularly hour. if it was Christopher Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> True. Uh... But no, like there's there's stuff that you can do there with that. And he didn't necessarily end The Hobbit on a cliffhanger, but his sequel feels pretty organic to the world. Totally. Totally. Yeah, a little too organic at times is my complaint. Yeah. <laughs> so we've talked about how to end a session generally on a cliffhanger that makes them want to come back. Like, you're yeah. under arrest. And what you just offered is how to end a campaign. Yep. Still problems in the world, still interesting things that could be explored, still open to your group chat saying, hey, do you guys want the next campaign to be in the same setting, same yep. world? Um, but everything is resolved with the characters and with the arc itself. Yep. Whether that is that characters died prematurely, because that can be not satisfying, but that can be the right thing to happen. Yeah. Um, whether it's that the players got what they wanted, whether it's that they did what they set out to do, had a change of heart in something, like, whatever it is, that's a good place to end it and make sure that they all the major loose ends are tied up. So let's talk loose ends, because you want to leave some untied if you intend to work in the world. For example, that ring is still in Bilbo's pocket at the end of The Hobbit. Yep, he takes it back to the Shire. Yeah. And that is, like, that loose end is, like, the narrative tension for the entire next series. Right. Yep. So how do you how do you make loose ends that are like that that are interesting and are compelling? Sure, sure. Uh, I'm gonna reference a series that we've referenced before that I don't have the highest opinion of, but I think works well because a lot of people know it. Are we gonna fight about it though? Yeah, Harry okay. Potter. Oh. Okay. No. So uh, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, right? Or Sorcerer's Stone for our American audiences. Mm -hmm. uh, in that book. There's, you know, we're an American audience, right? Yeah, I know. Okay, cool. Uh, cool. Just, cool. yeah. Cool, 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 cool. But, uh, cool. it's still the Philosopher's Stone to me. Anyway. That's okay. <laughs> so, Harry has this big fight with Voldemort at the end, and he wins. And he defeats Voldemort, and he defeats the vessel that Voldemort is using to survive. Okay. What? <laughs> Weird way to refer to a dude. <laughs> yeah, no, but like, as, as far as Harry is aware, Voldemort is now dead. Sure. Until he kills Quirrell. Yeah, he kills Quirrell. He straight up kills Quirrell. Dude, that he's a this eleven. I know. Wild. It's so bad. Uh, anyway, but anyway, he's in the hospital wing, and he's having a conversation with Dumbledore. And he's like, "Is is he gone? Is he really gone?" And Dumbledore just goes, "No." <laughs> like, I wish I could tell you that was the case, but no. Right. Like, and so also 
Harry still has a lot more to learn about magic, and that's pretty apparent given that it's his first year in this school. He's got seven years he can go there. Yeah. Wildest thing to me, by the way, was when he didn't go to school his seventh year. I was like, beg pardon? <laughs> it was so good. Well, I just love it because it like really sets the stage. Like You can imagine like all those parents who had issues with Harry Potter, right? when it first came out because sure. like, it's themes of like witchcraft and wizardry and so on um, <laughs> I imagine that me as a parent the only issue I would take is that he drops out right. I like get there I'm like oh shoot right. <laughs> don't do this kids but like it's totally understandable in the context you can drop out if you have to fight a dark lord kids right right uh, no that was like a wild plot twist for me I'm like oh he's not going back to Hogwarts this year yeah, no. Uh, it, it totally sets the tone for that book. Yeah, now. it's very good. I really actually like that part of the book. But no, he... And the loose thread that is left is... No, you didn't defeat Voldemort. Y you won a battle. That's good. But you did not win the war. Keep Yeah, keep going. No, that, that, that was it. Okay. Why? Man, because I just thought of a world where Harry Potter is 29 years old, 31 years old, 45 years old, and he has to either A, take the equivalent of the wizard GED, <laughs> or B, or B, do like some online courses to finish online what he started at Hogwarts, both of which are just blissfully, I just love this idea that like Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which I did not read, starts, out, starts out with like Harry Potter's kids running around and Harry Potter doing like some kind of distance education, like on his laptop, like, like the no, in his fireplace. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, like, this is it. If we win, if we earn one thousand dollars somehow on this show, we will write a Harry Potter fanfic. If we get that thousand dollars by the end whoa, of August, wait, hold on. When did we start fundraising? <laughs> if we get a thousand dollars on this show by the end of August, we will write Harry Potter and All the right. GED. Oh man, no. Okay, we're gonna come up with a better title, which will be Harry Potter and the Adjunct Professor. Nope, I tried. Um, Harry Potter. And the geckos. Per Harry Potter and the Stone Sorcerer <laughs> is very good. Um, no, Harry Potter and the geckos, but geckos is like owls, where it's like G dot E dot C dot. And okay. like, that gives me like a weird like uh, like a weird Looking Glass Wars or weird like Artemis Fowl energy that I'm not quite feeling. Uh, could we do Harry? Potter? Potter and the Certificate of Completion, Certificate of Harry Potter and the Certificate of Graduation, Harry Potter and the Certificate of Matriculation. There it is. Harry Potter and the Certificate of Matriculation. <laughs> there it is. Yes, yes, yes. I did it. Oh, man, it took us a second to get there. Harry Potter. It was faster than coming up with the... Uh, with the That's because you like wouldn't let me just like work through it to come up with uh, Wing Baron. With the Wing Baron. The Wing Baron. Man, Harry Potter and the Certificate of Matriculation will be my first fan fiction uh, but we have to get a thousand dollars by the end of august yes uh that will be the one thing so start crowdfunding that look for it on indiegogo and kickstarter right next to my inevitable indiegogo <laughs> go fund me right next to my project of trying to make a documentary where i live among the penguins in antarctica in a giant hamster ball which has been a lifelong dream of mine and now that i have a platform i guess it's probably time to start saying it um wow we really lost the narrative thread there huh let's you just want to wrap this up should we wrap this up yeah let's uh let's move into the bard corner we don't have a lot i don't think we have anything no just like one thing right just just one thing what what did we have in the bard corner should i check the notes should we just i don't have anything written for should the bard we just corner. uh should we just like fade into a music and see what see happens? what happens Listeners, 
stick around. Bart Corner's going to have some music to kick it off. And we'll see you next when it's time to roll an initiative. Catahoula Lake, casting ghastly shadows into the nearby forest. The occasional chitter from a nocturnal animal breaks the near-perfect silence, and the water ripples softly as a light breeze blows across the cold, unforgiving surface of the lake. We follow those ripples to the other side of the lake, where we see a stately manor, its porch facing the waterfront. The centuries-old paint is peeled, revealing ancient, rotting wood. The wispy web of a violin spider spreads itself across the doorway. It's clear nobody has been to this estate in years. Even the few rangers that watch over the Catahoula National Wildlife Refuge have forgotten this place exists, though you could probably find a note about it buried under a mess of folders in one of the rusting filing cabinets at the refuge's office. We look up to the upper floor of the manor home, where a steady blue light shines from a window on the east side. The wind picks up, stirring reeds and willows, and rattling the old shutters that make a frail attempt at covering the manor's windows. As the wind begins to howl, we see the blue glow in the window brighten until it shines blindingly. Then, as if on cue, the wind stops, and the light suddenly goes out. The dark, black waters of Catahoula Lake fall still, glassily reflecting the moon above, and the night is silent once again. 22 hours later and 31 miles away, just off of Highway 28, the sun sets on the sleepy town of Corte Fleur. Like every Friday night, most of the people in town have gone in already, but if you listen, you can hear motors revving as some of the wilder boys from Moreau High School Piau onto the 28, racing rusted-out Hondas and decrepit Fords against the blue and red lights that will inevitably follow. On Rousseau Drive, you can hear the sounds of a neighborhood barbecue dying off, as friends slowly scatter back to their homes. On Pickler Street, you can hear the melodies of Marissa Chen's nightly piano practice, which lilts out of the open parlor window of her parents' home.
Nathaniel, it's your turn. Where's Dylan on a regular Friday night? Well, he works a late shift at Blockbuster. Usually he is there till 8, unless there is a customer, not likely, or he is watching a movie till it ends, which is often the case. Tonight, however, the Burbs finished a mere two minutes after closing. So, in lieu of watching another movie, Dylan went to Pizza Hut, ordered a pizza with anchovies and jalapenos, and brought his new favorite meal over to the bar across the street. Blatantly disregarding the sign that says, no outside food or drink, he walks in with his 16-inch pizza, places it on a pool table rim, and picks up a stick. He's hoping to get a game or two in while he checks out the women. Most of them know him, and dislike him, but maybe he'll get lucky. Dylan pulls up to one of the two pool tables, the better of the two if you were to ask Hodge, and racks up the balls getting ready for a game. Nearby, a couple of pretty barely legal notice the blockbuster guy, and they make it a point to move to the other end of the bar as Dylan finishes the setup. Is Dylan any good at pool, or is he mostly just there to mess around and stare at women? If someone were to ask Dylan about his pool skills, he would say, I thought about going pro about six years back. Tournaments were being held in New Orleans, but I didn't have the cash, and my van Big Betty was in need of a repair. Man, you wouldn't believe the things that were going on with her, and so on. He isn't bad at the game, but he is there mostly to pass time, not because he is great. Staring at the women is nice, though. Well, all right. <laughs> because Dylan is a regular at the bar, it isn't too much of a surprise when Albert Winters walks up to the table and joins the game, taking a slice of pizza from the open box, which is precariously balanced where the velvet meets the wood. Al is a tall, dark-skinned man who looks like his last eight years were spent exclusively tossing rowdy patrons out of his bar. After taking a bite of Dylan's nightmare pizza, he grimaces, sets the slice back in the box, and grabs a pool cue. You actually here to play tonight, Dill? Or am I going to sweep the floor with you while you stare at every girl in Louisiana? Your bar ain't good enough to have every girl in Louisiana in it. Dylan says as he picks up the discarded pizza slice, eating it from the crust side, he continues... Also, I'm pretty sure you've never swept the floor in here with anything, let alone me. Al lets out a rich laugh and breaks the racked ball starting the game. The 15 ball shoots powerfully off the edge of the triangle, directly into the nearest pocket. Fair enough, he says. He takes a shot that was made easy by his break, securing the 14 ball in the same pocket as its numerical neighbor. Looks like I'm playing stripes. So, Nathaniel, in Monster of the Week, uh, you make different roles, right? We've talked about this a little bit. Uh, two six-sided dice determine the outcome. So right. I'm going to go ahead and have you roll to act under pressure, uh, which is plus cool, the cool stat in Monster of the Week. We'll use that roll to determine how the pool game goes with Al. All right, I rolled an eight. Cool. When you roll an eight to act under pressure, you succeed, but I, the keeper, get to give you a worse outcome, hard choice, or a price to pay. So, as Dylan lines up his last shot, he accidentally knocks over his pizza box, spilling its unholy contents onto the floor. Unwilling to let his focus be broken, he cleanly pockets the eight ball into his intended pocket, ending the game. Ah, good game, Al says. You had some real pretty shots in there. I'm going to need you to clean up after yourself, though. He grins, nodding toward the mangled mess of pizza lying on the tile floor. I'll get you a broom and a mop. Al steps behind the bar for a few moments, returning to wordlessly hand the cleaning supplies to Dylan. Dylan sighs, grabs the broom, and starts sweeping up, shoving the rest of it into the pizza box. When he thinks no one is looking, he does snag another bite or two. After that, he half-heartedly mops up the pizza mess. Dylan cleans the floor, much to the entertainment of some younger guys who watch the whole scene play out. Just as Dylan finishes up, a newcomer enters the bar. He's about five feet tall, and he wears a wet gray hoodie that's stained with something brown, like mud or marsh water. 
He pulls down his hood, letting unkempt black hair spill out, and Dylan recognizes his friend Hodge. When they meet eyes, Hodge hurries over. There's something urgent in the motion, and rather than greet Dylan normally, he speaks softly under his breath. Uh, uh, hey, Dill. Hey. Hey, I'm gonna need you to open the blockbuster for me. It's not an unusual request. Dylan and Hodge have been friends for ages, and some weekends, Hodge has needed a few extra horror flicks to kill the time, so Dylan has been willing to help him out before. Dylan glances around and extends the mangled pizza to Hodge. Sure, man. Then he whispers, Here, this'll take off the munchies. Hodge pushes the box away, a quick hint of frustration passing over his eyes. Nah, man, I ain't high. I'm, I'm sure of it. Look, can we just get over there? I need something to take my mind off things. Ah, I get it. You need a horror film, Dylan says with a wink. Well, let's go. I got some good ones I picked up last week. The two of you head over to the Blockbuster together, and Dylan fumbles with the keys for a moment before he gets the door open. The two enter the store, and Hodge quickly rushes to the back rows, returning with two cassettes. He produces copies of Sleeping Beauty and Gem in the Holograms Volume 2, Fashion Fiasco. Alright, uh, let's get out of here. Um, okay. Dylan says confused. Where to? I'm, uh, I'm actually probably gonna head home. Something doesn't seem quite right with Hodge. A hardcore horror buff like him isn't prone to checking out Disney flicks and 80s cartoons. On top of that, he keeps glancing around nervously. Well, I'll, uh, I'll see you later, man. Hodge says the words, but he doesn't actually move, as though he's waiting for something to pull him along. Well, let me check those out for you first. Management has been watching me closely recently, Dylan says and reaches for the cassettes. Oh, yeah, no, no problem. Hodge fishes for some cash before remembering he only needs it when he brings them back. Hey, man, can I ask you something? Sure, Dylan says as he opens the cassettes looking for anything unusual. The cassettes appear to be normal. You ever seen something spooky? I don't mean like those movies we watch, like The Thing or Killer Clowns or whatever. I mean like actually spooky. Like real stuff. Hodge looks away suddenly. You know what? Never mind. Forget I said anything. It sounds crazy already. Okay, wh whatever, man. Dylan says. You want me to walk you home or something? Uh, yeah. Yeah, sure, man. That That'd be great. Hodge starts his eyes around nervously, but he starts out the door. As they head for the door, Dylan pulls out a couple of doobies and passes one to Hodge. Want to talk about it? Surprisingly, Hodge refuses the gift of Dylan's gentle cush. I I don't think I want to get high tonight, man. I messed up enough already, but yeah, I, I guess. Well, well, do you remember Melissa Brand from 8th grade? Melissa Brand. Dylan says as he lights up his own smoke. A girl whose house we waited outside for three hours one night to do a panty raid, but you chickened out? Yeah. I ever tell you I almost made out with her? If her dad hadn't been such a piece of work, I would have done it too. Why? Dylan asks as he breathes the marijuana smoke in deeply. Uh, yeah, that's her. Well, okay, so when I was, when I was out with my cousin last week for his birthday, I ran into her in a bar in Alexandria. Apparently she's a school teacher or something now. <laughs> Hodge pauses for a moment as if considering his next words carefully. We, uh, we ended up going back to her place that night. Sorry I didn't tell you sooner. Whatever, Dylan says as he takes a long drag on his blunt. 
that's what's got you watching Disney movies? Well, well, not exactly. Hodge starts walking again, heading toward the trailer park. She calls me today and asks if I want to try something kind of... Um, Hodge stumbles over his words a bit and flushes. Anyway, she and I met up tonight in the woods, right by the wildlife refuge, you know? And we start to, well, you know, get going. Uh-huh. When all of a sudden there's this noise from the forest. And that's when I see something. Something spooky. Dylan breathes out a heavy sigh, then looking up at the stars, takes a deep pull on his weed. No, man, I'm not ready for this. He shakes his head, looks longingly at the blunt in his hand, and then drops the joint, crushing it with his foot. Tell me everything, and let's hurry. I need some stuff from the trailer. And he takes off at a brisk, unusually determined pace. Hodge can see that his hands are shaking, though. Awesome. Uh, so as we get started kind of here in the mystery, you're going to need a little bit more information, right? Right. Uh, so one of the rules that you can make in Monster of the Week is to roll to investigate a mission, uh, mystery. Uh, so go ahead and do that and tell me what you get. <laughs> 13. So 11 plus 2. Nice, nice. So on a 10 plus when you're investigating mystery, you're allowed to hold 2, uh, which means that you can ask two of the questions on the reference sheet. There's also some advanced moves there. Um, normally you can't use those just for the beginning. If you want to ask one of those advanced questions, which is like, you can pretty much ask me anything, uh, I'll let you go for it since we're early on and just kind of sure. try and get a feel for the rules. Dylan asks, what did you see? Tell me everything. Well, Hodge says, I'm going to be honest, not a whole lot, but we were out there in the woods, right? And I was just kind of caught up in the moment, but I saw, I don't know, man. It looked kind of like a dog, I think, or maybe a monkey. It was pretty dark, man, but whatever it was, it started like, started like crawling down the tree. Right behind her. So the second I point to it, she freaks out, and we both take off running. You're getting close to your trailer now, and Hodge pauses. Here's the thing, though. Maybe I just imagined that thing out there, but I don't know, man. I'd swear it followed us. Not like it was chasing us or nothing. More like it was hunting us. As soon as Dylan and Hodge get to the trailer, Dylan unlocks it and flips on a light. Moving with uncharacteristic speed, he opens a closet and pulls out his favorite outfit, a homemade Jason costume. After dressing into the homemade armor, Dylan goes to the kitchen and grabs the largest knife he can find with his right hand. Okay, Dylan sighs. Hodge, I got something to tell you, man. Dylan's left hand shakes as he pulls out another smoke, looks at it, and puts it back. I have a calling in life to stop monsters. I need you to show me where it is. 